Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Ready to get into the Word? You guys have your Bibles? You want to open up to Acts chapter 17 tonight for our study. If you're here and you don't have a Bible with you for whatever reason that might be, you can get the attention of one of the ushers, or you can open up your Bible app on your mobile device so that you can follow along with us uh, in our study. And um, let us do this. Let us pray once more. Just ask God to breathe upon His Word, and then we'll get into our message for tonight. And so, uh, Father, again, we just want to acknowledge You and honor You, Lord, and um, and, and call to our minds that it's you that speak, O oh Lord, and it's your word that has authority and power uh, in the world and in our hearts and lives. So uh, we just bow down uh, everything that we are, everything that we believe, everything that we are, Lord, and, uh, and we surrender to truth tonight and to you, Jesus, and to your voice and, and to your eternal word. So uh, would you please speak, Father, through this uh, great text, and would you help each of us, Lord, that um, your word would find its mark and its place within our heart. And so we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think one of the great wonders of humanity is how every single one of us can start in the exact same place and yet end up in so many varying and different places and positions. And you really think about it, um, it, it's amazing how many different positions there are in the world, how many different viewpoints, how many different beliefs, and yet we all start in the same place. When you just think about religion, there are so many different religions in the world. There is Buddhism and Islam and Christianity, and, and you know everyone comes into the world in the same place, but yet they end up in completely different places. And then even within the boundaries of those religions, say even within Christianity, there's different sects of Christianity. So you have uh, Pentecostals and Catholics and Methodists and uh, conservative and more um, expressive type Christians. And there's people that have different points of view and they see things from a different angle, even though they're within the boundaries. And then even amongst atheists, there's differing positions. There's atheists that don't believe in God. And then there's people that are atheists that say they don't know. And then there are atheists that say they don't believe in God and they're mad at God at the same time. And and there's just so many different positions that people can come to in all of this. And and, And it's a wonder that we have a thousand different answers for the questions of life, but really we all have the same exact questions when we begin. And isn't it kind of an interesting thing that when you first have a baby, when a a child is first brought into the world, what's the first question uh, that's on their mind and their heart and that comes out of their mouth is why? And, And if you think about it, that isn't really a logical first question for a child. I mean, that's not even a functional question. It would make so much more sense for a child to ask the question of what or when or where or how or who. But those aren't the questions in their mind. You would think that, that they would be asking, like, where is the bathroom? Or, where is my food? Or how is this crib holding me up? You know, those would be the questions that they would ask. But really, the first question is why? And you wonder, like, why and, and how is this child a philosopher before they even know how to feed themselves, but yet that's the question that resonates within the heart of every child. And, and even as a parent, you think sometimes that once you answer that question of why, 
that you have enlightened the child and that they'll be satisfied with that. But once you ask them, or they, they ask the question, why, and you give them an answer, what's the next thing that comes out of their mouth? Why? And, and it's like this insatiable quest for reason that is programmed into the human spirit. And, and that's what we all come into this world with, is this search for reason, this craving of wanting to know why. And humans are programmed to search for reason. And thus, as we come to this segment in Acts chapter 17, we follow the Apostle Paul right into the reason capital of the world. Paul finds himself in Athens, the fountainhead of the age of reason, the birthplace of the thinkers, those that would ask and then try to answer the question of why and now the answer comes into the place where the question is asked. And so we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 17, and I'm going to read from verse 15 and through the end of the chapter, and I want you to just follow with me through the narrative of Paul's visit to Athens, Greece. Notice this. It says in chapter 15, or chapter 17, verse 15, it says that they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens... And receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timothy for to come to him with all speed, they departed. So Paul is there alone. Timothy and Silas have been left behind at Berea. We'll catch up with them uh, a little bit later. But it says that while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he or reasoned he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And, and some said, what will this babbler say? And other some, he seems to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him and they brought him unto Areopagus or to Mars Hill, which was kind of the place where he could have an audience, where he could speak to the most people, saying, may we know what this new doctrine or this new teaching, this new idea whereof you speak is. For you bring certain strange things to our ears, and we would know, therefore, what, the, what these things mean. That is a reason word. They want meaning. They want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were, which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So then Paul, the doors open, the audience is seated, stood in the midst of Mars Hill, and he said, you men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. You are very superstitious. For as I passed by, I beheld your devotions, your idols, your altars, and I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God, uppercase G, singular tense, that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, 
as though he needed anything, seeing he gives to all life and breath and all things, and has made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined the times before appointed and the boundaries of their habitation. That, and there's a reason word, he's giving reason now, that they should seek after the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he is not far from every one of us. For, another reason word, for in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art or man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at. He understood it. He passed by it. But now commands all men everywhere to repent. The word uh, literally could be to reconsider. Because, another reason word, he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained, that's Jesus, the standard, whereof he has given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. The seal of God's authority and the symbol, the signet of his judgment through Christ is the fact that he was risen again. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, we will hear you again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them, howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Okay, so Paul now stumbles into the reason capital of the world and he engages with the culture and the society of Athens, Greece. Now, I know the question in your mind is, first of all, you're thinking, well, how did Paul get here? Because we left Paul in Philippi, which is about 200 plus miles north of Athens in, in our last study when we last saw him, and now he's in Athens. Well, what happened? Well, we know that from the first half of this chapter, that when Paul left Philippi, he traveled south a little ways to a city, a town, a village called Thessalonica. You might have heard of it because there's a book in the Bible uh, that is titled after a letter that Paul wrote to the Christians uh, in that region. And he was there for a very short time. He went into the synagogue as his custom was. He began to uh, preach to them Jesus and the cross and the resurrection and he was opposed by the Jews. Some of them listened to the things he had to say, but he had good fruit among the Greeks and the women that were there. As God said, you're going to be effective with those uh, people, with that audience. And so Paul was effective there, but the Jews were jealous. And so they began to persecute Paul. And seeing the end in sight in that place, he left Thessalonica and he traveled a little bit further south to another village called Berea. And in Berea, Paul did the same thing. He went into the synagogue. He began to expound Jesus from the scriptures to them. And we're told that the Jews in Berea were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica because they at least listened to what Paul had to say and then compared what he was saying with what the Old Testament scriptures said to see if perhaps Paul might be bringing 
some credence to what they should be believing. And so some Jews there believed because they searched the scriptures. And again, he had good fruit amongst the Gentiles and the women that were there. However, the Jews from Thessalonica and Philippi followed Paul, were jealous of Paul, and so they brought their same persecution and their same slander to the city of Berea. And seeing the writing on the wall, the people that were with Paul took him and snuck him out of Berea, leaving Silas and Timothy behind, his co-laborers, the pastors that were with him. And Paul was then taken 200 miles from Berea down to Athens, where he arrives alone. He doesn't have Silas and Timothy with him. He has a couple of people that brought him on his way, but he finds himself there essentially by himself, and he comes into Athens, and when he sees this city that is completely given over to the worship of false gods and to beliefs that are not true and searching after truth but not finding it, it says that his spirit was stirred within him and he, he now comes into this place, the birthplace of Grecian philosophy, the, the birthplace of Socrates, or if you, if you ever watched Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, it's, it's Socrates, <laughs> and, uh, and Aristotle, and Plato, you know, the greats that you had to read when you were in college, you probably don't remember anything they said, but the fountainhead of the age of reason, he comes into Athens, Greece. Now, when he's there, he encounters three groups of people. First of all, he encounters the Jews. He went into the synagogue. There was a synagogue that was there. And so as his manner was, he starts with the Jews. Now, we already know, essentially, what the Jews believed about God. They believed in the God of the Bible. They believed in in the capital G-O-D, Jehovah God, that is written about. They believed in the law of Moses. They worshiped the true God, but they didn't believe the message concerning Jesus, that Jesus was God in the flesh, sacrificed for their sins, risen again for their justification, and that through faith in him, they could have eternal life, that they could be saved. And so they believed in the right God, but their truth was incomplete. And Paul reasoned with the Jews that were there in Athens. The second group of people we're told that Paul encountered in Athens was this group of people called the Epicureans. Now, the Epicureans believed, they were philosophers that believed that the purpose of life was pleasure, but a a particular type of pleasure, not a hedonistic pleasure wherein whatever feels good, you just do it with no regard for morality or justice or anything, but rather it was a pleasure that was based on the absence of pain or the absence of mental anguish, like fear and anxiety. And thus, they were smart enough, these Epicureans, to realize that that was not an immoral seeking after pleasure. This was not an immoral people, so to speak, okay? They realized that immorality actually leads to pain. And so they believed in controlling their indulgent desires and living a well-ordered life. Their philosophy of justice was that mankind has a social contract that's established on mutual harmlessness. Meaning that, listen, you do right by me, I'll do right by you. You don't do wrong by me, I won't do wrong by you. It's just common sense, kind of a do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
They were light on politics. They believed that politics led to corruption and oppression, and so they knew it was necessary, but yet they didn't go too far down that road. Religiously, the Epicureans were not atheist. They believed in gods, plural, but their belief concerning gods is that they were either limited in their power or they were uninvolved in the affairs of men. And they came to that conclusion just based on their observation of what was going on in the world around them. They, they could not reconcile how there could be an all-powerful God who was also good and yet tolerated or allowed evil to exist in the world. And so they had this issue that they called the trilemma and that they could not resolve. There's actually the riddle of Epicurus. Let me read it to you. It's not long. But the riddle of Epicurus says this, that God either wants to eliminate bad things and cannot, or he can but does not want to, or neither wishes to nor can, or both wants to and can. If he wants to and cannot, then he is weak, and this does not apply to God. If he can but does not want to, then he is spiteful, which is equally foreign to God's nature. If he neither wants to nor can, he is both weak and spiteful, and so not a God. If he wants to and can, which is the only fitting thing for a God, where then do bad things come from, or why does he not eliminate them? And that was the riddle of the Epicureans. It was the trilemma that God is omnipotent in their minds. He's got to be all-powerful for him to be God. He's got to be good for him to be God. Nevertheless, evil exists, and they could not reconcile those things in their mind. That was more or less the position of the Epicureans. Now, the Stoics, which is the third group that Paul encountered while he was there in Athens... The Stoics believe that the purpose of life is to improve an individual's ethical and moral well-being through virtue, and virtue consists in a will that's in agreement with nature. And so they observed the world around them, and then they withdrew a morality based upon nature, and they said that the practice of virtue is necessary and sufficient to achieve a flourishing life. The Stoics defined virtue by four cardinal values. Number one was prudence. They held it as a high value to be able to discern the appropriate course of action to be taken in a given situation or at a given time. We would just call that wisdom, doing the right thing at the right time. The second uh, um, cardinal um, virtue was justice, which is just fairness. Again, similar to the Epicureans. The third was fortitude, which they defined as courage, strength, endurance, and the ability to confront evil or intimidation that comes against you. And then fourthly, temperance, which is basically self-control, the ability and the power to control your appetites and to live with a sound mind. That's how they defined virtue, and that's what they pursued. They just wanted to live a virtuous life. They also believed heavily in human equality. 
The Stoics believed that all races and all people were created equal and that there shouldn't be one group of people that's favored or ruling over another group of people. They also believed that reason, that's what everybody's searching for, right? That the answer to why in the world can be achieved through logic. I found this quote from Marcus Aurelius, who was an ancient Stoic. Um, I, I think he had like a million followers on Twitter before, you know, certain things happened. He was just very influential, apparently. But listen to this uh, uh, thing that he said. He said, make for yourself a definition or a description of the thing which is presented to you so as to see distinctly what kind of a thing it is in its substance, in its nudity in its complete entirety, and tell yourself its proper name, and the names of the things of which it has been compounded, and into which it will be resolved. For nothing is so productive of elevation of mind as to be able to examine methodically and truly every object that is presented to you in life, and always to look at things so as to see at the same time what kind of universe this is and what kind of use everything performs in it and what value everything has with reference to the whole. Now, just in case you got lost in the verbiage of all of that, essentially what he is saying is that no matter what you come in contact with, whether it is something visible or invisible, he says what you are to do is first of all, label it. Study it to the point where you understand it and then name it, label it. Then secondly, prioritize it, or I'm sorry, contextualize it. Not only define it for what it is, but see how it fits into the grand whole of life and see it in its full context. And then thirdly, assign it value. That if you can do that with everything in life, then you'll have good reason and you'll have your good wits about you and you will flourish within your life. They believe that knowledge can be attained by reason and that truth can be known, okay? Now, none of those three positions, the Jew, the Epicurean, or the Stoic, are evil in and of themselves. The problem with all three is that they, all of them were on a quest for reason and truth. None of them had it. And we know that because they're on Mars Hill still trying to find it. So in spite of all of their philosophy, all of their practice, all of their wisdom, all of their experience, none of them had come to the place where they were so settled in what they had found that they no longer felt like they needed to search for what was actually true. Because it tells us that all of them that were there were fully given to idolatry, a false sense of something that wasn't true, and that they did nothing else but share ideas searching for something beyond what they already have, okay? So they hadn't found it. They all had different answers, but what amazes me is that they all had the same questions because when you read the text and you discern from it what it is that they were seeking after, they were all looking for the same thing. They were all looking, first of all, for community, or intimacy, or connection, both with God and with people. We know that because of the fact that Jews were gathering in synagogues, 
Citizens were gathering and talking in marketplaces. Epicureans, Stoics, and citizens were getting together, reasoning and debating about things. They craved human connection. That was a common bond that all of them had, regardless of the differences in their answers to what their questions were. They also, all of them, craved progress. They wanted to get better. They wanted their future, individually and as a society, to be better than what it was presently. That's why they gathered together and shared ideas constantly because they wanted to grow. They wanted to invest. They wanted to move beyond where they were. They wanted to have, in a word, hope. That's what progress for an individual actually is, is, is the hope of a better thing than what I have or what I am presently. They all wanted that, even though they had different answers as to how to find it. And then thirdly, all of them wanted reason. They wanted answers to the questions of the whys of life. Different answers again, but they all wanted that reason. That's why when they heard Paul preach Jesus in the resurrection, they immediately flocked to him. And what was the question that they asked? They said, what do these things mean? They wanted meaning. They wanted reason. They wanted to understand. They, all three groups wanted these things, community, progress, and reason. The problem is that they were looking in the wrong places because we're told that they were wholly, completely given to idolatry. They were making gods, lowercase g, plural tense, out of things that were not gods, and they were looking for answers in places where answers cannot be found. Well, what happens now is that Paul the apostle stumbles into the village, into the city, and he has the answer, and by the grace of God and through his wisdom, he wins an audience with the citizens of Athens, which is really quite miraculous that a stranger can kind of come into a city and the whole city can kind of say, hey, we're going to get together an audience in the Areopagus on Mars Hill, and we all want to hear what you have to say. That's amazing. And, and so I asked myself the question is, how, how did he do that? Because, I mean, when you have the answer to the questions of mankind, it should be our, our quest, our desire to give those answers away. Our biggest problem is not having the answer. Our problem oftentimes is not having an audience, is that people don't want to listen to the answer that we have. They don't have interest in the things that we want to say. It's not that they don't have the questions. They don't want to hear us say it. How did Paul win an audience with the philosophers of Athens? How did he win this audience? I'll give you two things that the text gives us a clue concerning why it was that they gave their attention to the things that Paul says. The first clue is given to us in verse 23. It tells us in verse 23, and this is, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I, I want to point this out, that when Paul speaks to them, he says, as I pass by, watch this, he says, I beheld your devotions, or I beheld your, your altars, I beheld your idols, I beheld the things that you love, I beheld the things that you value, I beheld them, and I want you to think about that word for just a minute. Because oftentimes in the Bible, when, when you see that word beheld, it means so much more than just glanced at. It doesn't mean that he just says, hey, I just happened to notice 
while I was passing through and seeing these things. But rather, the word beheld means that he took a second glance. That's actually literally how that word beheld translates into the Greek, is that I took a second look. He took, listen, he took the time to understand what they loved. He took the time to study it long enough to think about why they valued it so highly, so as to understand where they were coming from. He beheld the things that they loved. And I wonder, how many times do we stop for just a minute and and, and thinking about the people that we want to reach, the people that are lost, the people that we see chasing after things that cannot help them, that are not the answer. If we ever stop long enough to just ask the question, why do they love money? Why do they love money? They're chasing it. They're seeking it. They're pursuing it. Why? What is it that internally they think money is going to do? What is it that they're actually longing for that they think money is going to pacify? And then sitting there looking at it long enough to really understand what's making a person tick. Why do they love clothing? Why are they so given to the way they look and the style that they reflect and the patterns and colors and styles and things? Why do they love those things? Why are human beings drawn to that? Why do they love the movies that they love? Why do they love playing games? Why do people love taking drugs and and putting substances in their body that make them feel a certain way? I was at the gym this afternoon, and, and, and I'm, I always go to the gym on Wednesday afternoons. It's kind of how I decompress before I recompress. And as I was there, and it's there every week, Ellen is on the TV screen. Ellen. And I started to ask myself, why do they love Ellen? You know, and we laugh, but people love Ellen, Oprah, Dr. Phil. Why? And sometimes compassion... A desire to win an audience requires that we take the time to behold what other people love long enough to understand what it is they're trying to satisfy and fill by giving themselves to a desire that can never give to them what they hope that it will. It's important. Paul said, I beheld your devotions. The second thing that Paul did that won him an audience, it tells us in verse 22, it says that he stood in the midst of Mars Hill. In other words, he didn't say, guys, I I just cannot, being a Christian and a Jew, I just cannot have photographs of myself taken in that setting. I, I cannot be in that place that is just marked by paganism and idolatry. I cannot bring the message of Jesus into a TED Talk because that would just be, I I can't do that. It's against my convictions. No, no, no. His position was, I am going to go where they are. I'm going to speak to where they are and speak to them where they are, regardless of where they are. That's where I'm going to go. And it's so essential that that happened. He wasn't ashamed to be among them, and he didn't think of himself better. I find it interesting. I have been speaking in front of people for a very, very long time. And uh, one of the things that I have learned 
is that, that, that when you first come into an audience or a group of people that they don't really know you, they don't, they're, they're not familiar with you, you know, you see a lot of crossed arms, you see a lot of like, you know, kind of like, you know, uh, uh, skeptical kind of looks and the whole thing. And, and what I've realized is that the very first question that people are asking internally, subconsciously, when you begin to speak to them, is they're saying, are you one of us or are you one of them? In other words, can I relate to you? Are you, are you someone that I can connect with on a level that I can let what you're saying into my life in a way that it might affect me? Or are you a kind of person that I don't want to be like you are because you, you, you put yourself to be so much different or you think yourself to be so much better? And I think one of the errors that Christians make sometimes is that we have an arrogance about us wherein we think, well, we have everything, we have all the truth, we're holy and better, and so you'll come to where I am, but I will never go to where you are. And that does more harm than good because it doesn't soften people to let us into their life because we're not trying to get in. We're saying, hey, if you want to come to where I am, you're welcome, but I will never meet you where you are. And it's just an arrogance. I know some people that do not have a single unsaved friend And sometimes people can think that's spiritual, but it's not spiritual, it's actually arrogant. Because how else are you going to allow people to behold you if you don't behold them? Paul said, listen, I'm going to stand right in the middle. I'll come right where you are. I'll get my hands dirty so that you will listen. And thus he won an audience with a city after only a couple of days because he was willing to let these people into his life. Now, interestingly, Paul's message... He opens it in a way that I probably wouldn't. But he begins by saying to them, he says, I perceive that in all things, you guys are too superstitious. Listen, don't, don't try to win an audience with people by insulting them right off the bat. All right? But before you think that that's what Paul was doing, let's think about what he was actually saying. Because when we hear the word superstitious, we have an English definition for that word. You know, we think of superstition as a belief that hangs on nothing right? Like, don't let a black cat cross your path because you'll have seven years of what? Yeah, you guys know the superstitions. Don't walk under a ladder. If you step on a crack, you'll break your mother's back. And that gave me a panic attack when I first started jogging because there were sidewalks. And do you know how hard it is to jog several miles and never step on a crack? You know, until my mom got me upset. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> you're trying, you're trying, you know. But, but, but it's a belief that hangs on nothing. That's not what it meant in, in the context of the Bible. So I looked up the word because I wanted to understand what Paul was actually trying to say. Now, I love the word. It's not very often that I'm going to give you a Greek word, but I like this one. It, it, it's literally this. It's dei dia monasteros. Okay, I'm going to say it again. Dei dia monasteros. Okay, let me break it down. Dei is God. We sing Angus Dei, it's God, okay? Dia, it, it means diametric, that there's two different things, that there's opposition. Like you would say, I'm diametrically opposed. I'm, there, there's things that are opposite. And when I saw the third part of it, monasteros, I, I just saw the word monstrosity. That's what I saw, okay? Now, that is not what it means in the Greek, Okay, but when you put the full conjunction of those three things together, dei, dia, monasteros, what it literally means 
is a monstrosity of conflicting ideas about God. That's what the word superstition, that's how Paul opens. He says, listen, I perceive walking around in this city that you guys have a monstrosity of conflicting ideas about God. Now, any honest person that was there living in Athens would say, yup, pretty much. <laughs> you know, we, we absolutely do. In their society, there had to be many gods because just one God could not answer the trilemma of a thinking, intelligent person. One God just seemed too conflicting. Good, powerful, allows evil. How do those things all go together? So there's got to be more than one. Well, now that there's more than one, now there can be as many as we want. And so there's a God for this, a God for that, a God for this, a God for that, a God for everything that you can imagine under the sun. However, even once you have a plurality, an infinitum of gods, you still can't answer all the questions of the universe. Thus, they erected an altar to what they called the unknown God. They're like, all right, we're just going to have a blanket God for everything else that we can't understand. Now, now just erase all the idols and just go logic for a minute. Just believe in one God and believe that you're not going to understand everything about God. And it's the same thing as having a plurality. They're full of opposition amongst themselves. They are diametrically opposed to themselves in the things that they believe about deity. And that's how Paul opens up. He says, listen, you guys are confused about the things of God. And he says, when I beheld your altars, I saw this one that was to the unknown God. That's the one I want to talk to you about. You, you acknowledge that there are mysteries in the universe, so let's talk about a God who allows there to be mysteries in the universe. He's the one that I want to declare unto you. And then he says to them concerning him in verse 24, and I want to look at these verses again. He says, God, singular, that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, he dwells not in temples made with hands. He says, listen, he is the one who created all things and he's the Lord of all things, which means that he is sovereign over all things. He is actually omnipotent, even as you yourselves would believe. He goes on to tell them, he does not live within what we create. He is not found within the things that we make. Because if he is over us, then he cannot be beneath us in the line of creation. Meaning we cannot possibly make something with our hands that will be reflection of the thing that made us because what made us is greater than anything that we can make. It's just logical to think of. It says then in verse five, 25, he says, neither is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he gives to all life and breath and all things. In other words, our worship of God is not based upon what we bring to him. Because the one who created us is not in need of anything that can come from us. He is completely self-sufficient and he's sustained alone. He stands alone. He is not worshiped by what we bring. He is worshiped rather by what we receive. 
He says that it's in him we live and, the, and, and we move and we have our being. He, he says that he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Now, what's interesting to me here is that he actually affirms the Epicurean belief that life is to be enjoyed. He doesn't say, you guys are idiots. You have no clue. No, he actually says, you're on to something. You just haven't gotten everything. Life is to be enjoyed. Then he goes on in verse 26, and he talks to the Stoics. He says, and he has made, he has made of one blood, all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he has determined the times before appointed and the boundaries of their habitation. He looks at the Stoics and he says, hey, you guys are onto something too. You guys believe that all men are created equal, that there is no one race that is superior to another race and that there is no man that is superior to another man, but that all men are equal and you're onto something there. However, and this is where it gets complicated. He says, however, we are all of one blood, but he has determined the times before appointed. That means that he has created the nations. They're ordained of God, and he's determined the times and ages and generations. He's laid out the progress of history, and he says, the boundaries of their habitation. Okay, so listen to this. Follow me here. God created all men equal. However, under all men being equal, he also created races. So he is the author of equality and he's the author of nations. He's the author of races. He ordained it that some people would be one color skinned and some people would be another. He ordained it that there would be a separation in appearance and in culture, and in society. He ordained it that there would be differences among people, that God actually ordained that reality amongst humanity. He also ordained the progress of human history, times, ages, nations, borders and boundaries of nations. He says the boundaries of their habitation. Now, watch this. What does that mean? God establishes borders, which means this. Listen, God not only is the one that drew the map that determines what nations are where, but it means that he's also determined every other border and boundary that exists between men. That means, okay, that he has also determined the boundaries of human capacity. What does that mean? It means that God made it so that some people are smarter than other people. God made it so that some people are stronger than other people, that some people have a capacity to do more than other people. God has drawn the boundary. Now, how many of you know someone who's better than you at something or at everything, and it drives you crazy? How many of you feel like everyone's better than you at something or at everything, and it drives you crazy? How many of you think you're better than everybody else, and you're really glad about that, and it drives them crazy. We understand that there are differences between us as individuals, that God has made it that way. And it drives us crazy, but it is nevertheless. God also has determined the boundaries of lifespan. 
which means that every one of us has to go through the stages of discovery and then immortality when we think we're invincible and then vulnerability when we realize that we're not as eternal as we think and then agedness where we start to have to grapple with the fact that we're going to die and everything that comes along with it. Now, why is that critical to the point that Paul is going to begin to make here? Here's why, okay? Because though he supports the belief of the Stoics that everyone is equal, yet tucked into those distinctions are all of the things that complicate human existence and are the catalyst for pain, poverty, slavery, oppression, and evil. Because if you think about pain, poverty, slavery, oppression, and evil, they are almost always connected in some way to those differences among us. When you read James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, James says, where do wars and battles and fightings and storms and unsettlings, where do those come from, from among you? Why do people fight? Why is there evil? Why is there oppression? Why is there slavery? Where does this come from? He says, come they not hence, even from your lusts that war in your members. He says, you lust and have not, you kill and desire to have, and you cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. In other words, what, what Paul is leading to, what James defines in James chapter 4, is that of all of the things humanity can discover and create and produce and advance through, the one thing that humanity has never been able to produce, not in the history of the world since Adam, is peace. And the reason why there is not peace between men is because there is not peace within men. God has created the framework for you to feel that pain, that evil, that oppression, that sense of inequality, even though all men are created equal. God has allowed evil to exist. God has ordained that evil should exist. What does the two-year-old ask? Why? <laughs> he gives the answer in verse 27. That they should seek after the Lord. That they should seek after the Lord. That when you realize you cannot solve the complex problems of a God who's too big for you to understand, that at that moment you will search for the God that is too big for you to understand. If, he says, happily, that means perhaps, they might feel after him, that means connect to him, and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. He says, listen, the reason why God allows evil to persist in the world and for you to feel the effects of that evil is so that you will turn to him and find him in the result of searching for a solution to the pain that you're going through because of the difficulties that are in the world. Listen, this is the answer to the trilemma. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. 
God is good, yet evil exists. Why? It's so that in our hearts, feeling the tension between those truths, we will search for the answers, and then in that search, we will find our place to the God who made all things. Now, what he is saying is that it is through the presence of evil that man is driven to search. Now, what does a child ask now? Why? Why? Because <laughs> he just, the, the reason, he, so Paul knows that. So verse 28, he says, for, and here's why God continues, in him we live and move and have our being as certain also of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. He says, listen, for, for in him, when you find him, when you realize and recognize the God who is, he says, in that moment, you will find life, you will find your purpose, that's movement, and then third of all, he says, have our being, that means wholeness. That when you find God, that's the place where you're gonna find what life is all about, and then you're going to find also why you exist and how you're supposed to move, what your purpose is in this life. And it's also where you're going to be made whole and complete. And you're going to find the answer to the questions that rage inside of you and have since the time that you were born. Because when the soul finds its rest in its answer, in the thing that it was created for, which is relationship with God, at that moment, it no longer needs to go to Mars Hill to search for answers. It goes to Mars Hill to give answers because God is the great answer. He says, listen, if we're his offspring, he can't be ours. Now, what's the action that he ties to the message that he's bringing? Verse 30, he says, in the times of this ignorance, God winked at, he says, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. The word repent there, it just simply means to reconsider. It, it isn't the same kind of a thing as like uh, where, where he's saying like, you know, maybe it's repent of idolatry, but the, the idea is to put the training wheels back on your bike and open your heart to a truth that you haven't considered yet. You've looked everywhere else, turn around and look behind you. You've looked at everything you can create in your mind and with your hands, but you haven't considered where you came from which is behind you. Consider God. Consider something else. Put your former beliefs on hold and seek after the God who can give you the answer. Okay. Um, now, verse 31 through 34, let's, let's just read it again so we can hear the outcome because it's important to the close of our study. He says, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, that is Jesus, whereof he has given assurance to all men that in that he has raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we'll hear you again. So Paul departed from among them, howbeit certain men claved to him and believed, among which was Dionysius and then Damaris and a few others uh, that were with them. But listen to this as we uh, wind up our um, kind of technical study for tonight. Is this, is that what all of humanity what all women and men are searching for and looking for are intimacy or community, progress or development or a better future or hope and reason. The answer to the reason of why we exist, why does the world exist? All of us, every human being has common ground in that. 
Every human being has an intuitive awareness of the trilemma. Whether we can define it and verbalize it or not, every one of us realizes in our spirit that there must be a God who is all-powerful and who is also benevolent and involved, and yet we have trouble reconciling that with the fact that we experience evil in the world. That's true about every human being. Every one of us then grows up with superstition, that is, a monstrosity of conflicting ideas about God, which then, and here's where I'm going to say something controversial, so you can wake up, hit record, so that everyone will seek after God. That's what Paul said. Did you hear him say it? He said, if haply you might seek him and find him. Because every human being has it in their hearts to seek for God. Now, I know what some of you are thinking and why it's controversial. Because you're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Old Testament prophesied, Paul actually even said in Romans chapter 1, that no one seeks after God, that no one is a God seeker. Listen, that is true when a person is content. When a human being is content, they will not search for God. And that is why God has placed the agitation of pain, poverty, inequality, evil, and agitation within us because it is in that that we realize the broken relationship that exists between humankind and God and that in that we search for him. And in that position, everyone seeks for God. What does everyone want? They want peace. They want joy. They want hope. They want a future. That's what they want. No human being is capable of producing that on their own. And so though someone might say, I'm not seeking after God, They are seeking after the things that can only come from God. So bridge the gap. Everyone is searching and seeking after God. Everyone is seeking it. The answer to man's search for reason is God. The answer to the great question of why is Jesus. That's the answer. Jesus is the answer for our desire for intimacy because through Jesus we're connected again to God and our soul is made whole. In connection to Jesus, it opens the door for us to have true intimacy and vulnerability and true transparency with other human beings and to actually connect in a way that's real and not uh, a facade and not fake and and, and, and phony, uh, 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 an image of what I want to project to you rather than what I truly am. Only Jesus gives me the freedom to actually be able to have it. Jesus is the answer for my desire to have intimacy with God and with people. Jesus is the answer for my desire for a better future. He's the one that gives me hope that the things that I'm going through right now are serving me to something that's coming later in the future, that all things are working together for good to them that love him and are called according to his purpose. He's the only one that can do that because he can lay out the steps. He's the answer for my desire for growth. And he's my answer for the question of reason. Because he makes sense of life, he makes shape of life and truth. He brings truth into my life. Now, you know what's interesting to me? Is that Paul's message didn't work. I mean, in in, in the great scheme of Paul's effectiveness in the places that he went, Thessalonica, Berea, 
Philippi, Corinth, where he'll go next, and then the other cities that have, in the grand scheme of things, his message didn't really land in Athens. He preaches, and then he leaves. A few people believe, Dionysus and Damaris and a few others with them, but his, his fruit was not prolific. It, it didn't really land. You say, why, when the brilliance of the apostle could lay something out so clearly, why didn't it land? I'll give you two ideas. I don't know the real one. God can tell us someday, but I'm going to give you two things that I think are, are the reason why. Number one is because I believe that the, the, the citizens of Athens were anesthetized with idolatry. Do you know what idolatry is? Idolatry is a counterfeit fulfillment of a real desire. Okay, I have a real desire for something, but I can find something counterfeit that I can fix or fill that need with temporarily so that I don't feel the strength of that need. Okay, that's like sex. Okay, what is sex? Sex is a way for me to have the feeling of connection and intimacy with another person, but without the true intimacy of having conversation and depth and really knowing a person and getting to know them. I think that's why young couples move to sex so quickly in their relationships because they don't have the depth on any other level to really connect. And so they go right to that. What is money? Money is the counterfeit feeling for progress. Well, I have more money, so that means I must be growing. I must be doing better. I must be getting better. I must be more valuable because I'm obtaining more value. But it's counterfeit. It's an, it's an idol. It's idolatry. What are all of the things that we put our value in, our love in? They're counterfeits that fill a void that ultimately can only truly be filled in God. But when we have so much of it, we don't feel our need for God. The city was wholly given to idolatry. Therefore, they couldn't feel their need for God, even though they were grasping for it right in front of the Apostle Paul. I think that could be a reason, but I think there's another reason. I think the other reason is because when Paul preached Jesus to these Athenian citizens, he skipped the cross and he went right to the resurrection. There's no mention of the cross of Jesus Christ in this sermon. I actually think it was an error. And you say, well, can Paul make an error? Yes, Paul can make an error in his preaching. There's not an error in the word. That's what Paul said. But he skipped the cross. I, I know this is kind of true because I have preached sermons that didn't land right. And I felt lived on to feel it and go back and say, yeah, yeah, I missed some things. Or I said too much. Usually that's what it is. Why are you laughing? See, the resurrection is the proof and the seal that God is all-powerful. Because if he can raise the dead, then there's nothing he can't do. But the cross is the proof and the seal that God cares about a lost humanity. And you realize that's part of the trilemma? That God is either powerful and he doesn't care, or... He's weak, even though he cares. See, the cross testifies that God cares. Because on the cross, God himself did what needed to be done to bridge the gap between a fallen humanity, a broken humanity, 
and a holy God. He bore in himself the suffering that our evil deserved because of his compassion and love for seeing us in our lost and searching position. He cared. And the resurrection was the seal that he's powerful enough to be God and set things right both in our lives and in a broken world. And it's the cross and the resurrection that is the answer to the trilemma. I also believe that's true because Paul's next move, he's going to go to Corinth, and he's going to actually tell us that when he went to Corinth, he purposed, he made a declaration to himself that he was going to do nothing but preach the cross because he realized I, if without the cross, this whole thing falls down. There's some of you that are here tonight, and you need to know that God is absolutely, passionately concerned and in love with you. And he demonstrated it and proved it by carrying a cross up Calvary's hill and being crucified and bled out, though he didn't deserve it. And he did that for you so that you could be brought to him. And he did it because he loves you and wants to be in relationship with you. And the resurrection of Jesus three days later was the proof, not only that he rightfully paid the price that we couldn't pay, but that God has the power to resurrect the brokenness that's in us and to make us completely whole and to do everything that he has said he is going to do in our lives because he had the power to break death in the resurrection of Jesus. And for you and I that are here that have the same needs as all of broken and fallen humanity, the answer is Jesus. And it comes when we stop trying to make him who we want him to be, and rather we come to him with open heart. That's what reconsider Repent. It means open up your heart and to declare to God, to declare to Jesus, I give you all that I am. I surrender my life to you as the one who made it and rightfully owns it. And it's in that place when we give our lives to him, coming to him through the cross, believing in the resurrection, that God comes into us, not alongside of us, and he resolves and reconciles not just the questions we have, but he meets the deepest needs and longings of us. It's where we realize that what we were longing for, needing the most, is what we were made for. It comes in Jesus. And I invite you tonight, if you're in any way feeling estranged from God, that you're walking a counterfeit faith, the prayer is, Jesus, I give you everything that I am. I give you my life completely. I surrender completely to you. Father, we just thank you tonight for the, the amazing God that you are. And we acknowledge the mystery of the things that we can't understand. And we lay down our desire to answer every why. And we declare faith and trust that you're the God who made all things, who's sovereign over all things, including even the presence of evil and its effect on us in, in our our, our experience. And we declare faith tonight that Jesus, you did all things for the sake of creating an object of affection and a relationship that we could have with you. And so our desire tonight, Lord, is that we might be brought close, that we might lay down our anxieties, our fears, that we might find resolution to the things that we question, the things that we need, and that you, Lord, would be God in our lives. And I pray for anyone here tonight 
that has yet to really know you in that personal and intimate way, that you would give them the power and the ability to reconsider, to open their hearts to you, to believe on you, to put their trust in you. And that, God, you would give us as your church and as your people a heart to see a lost world and the wisdom to be able to see things as they do and speak to the things that they need. Help us, Lord, that we might give away what we ourselves have received. So we ask for these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.